Welcome to Holding the Fire, Indigenous Voices on the Great Unraveling. I am your host, Dar Jamail. Following another summer of record heat waves, droughts, floods, and wildfires across vast swaths of the globe, the injuries done to the planet by the Industrial Growth Society have never been so conclusive, and 2023 will be the hottest year ever recorded. Earth has a severe fever, and the global industrial society built on growth, extraction, and colonialism is the cause. It deeply troubles me to consider the fact that all of the climate perturbations we have witnessed to date are from having raised the temperature of the atmosphere 1.25 degrees Celsius, while some projections show us reaching as high as 5 degrees Celsius, or even higher in less than 80 years from now. As I grapple with collapse, I wanted to speak with Dilafruz Konekboyeva, an indigenous Pamiri woman from Tajikistan, who has lived through it and come out the other side. When she was a child, her family had to flee their homeland during a civil war. It's not the end of the world. Again, we've all seen the end of the world in different capacities, but it is an opportunity for us to right-size and figure out how are humans part of nature? How do we get back to a closer equilibrium to humans being a part of nature and not antagonizing it and also not feeling antagonized as it responds to our overtaking Dilla Fruz is a transformational conflict expert who has focused her work on civil wars, climate and resource conflicts, and storytelling. Currently, she is the inaugural executive director of the Home Planet Fund, the latest tool in the Patagonia philanthropic ecosystem. In our conversation, she discusses how the Pamiri people survive conflict and great change while maintaining their core identity and values by grieving then by drying their tears and carrying on. She reminds us how indigenous peoples have always had a symbiotic relationship with earth and of biophilia, living as one with and being in love with earth. I found the time with Dilla Fruz enlightening and inspirational and learned a lot from her about how best to comport myself during these times of collapse and great change. I trust you will have a similar experience. Dilla Fruz, welcome to the podcast. Dar, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's very interesting circumstances because this is actually take two on our interview for technical reasons. We had to come back in and redo this, and it's been a good amount of time. And now, uh, in the interest of transparency, I just want to mention that you being the inaugural executive director of Home Planet Fund, which we will talk more about in a bit, but we are about to be working together and I'm going to be working with you uh, in the communications realm. And I'm very, very excited about that, but I'm just kind of marveling at that big change from last time we, we spoke. I love it. You're breaking the news. We're so excited to have you back. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm off the charts excited about it and very honored with this uh, opportunity to 
help serve in this way. And, and we'll, like I said, we'll get, we'll get into that here a little bit further on in the interview, but an attempt to go somewhat linearly, I wanted to start with asking you if you would talk about your childhood. It was very extraordinary because in your early childhood, you lived in an area of Tajikistan surrounded by your people. And this was very unique in that you got to grow up within your intact indigenous culture. If you would, uh, would you talk about what that was like for you? Absolutely. Let me provide some context first. So I am Palmyra, and that's the way we refer to ourselves because we are people of the Palmyra Mountains. The Palmyra Mountains are in Central Asia. They actually, from the Palmyra Mountains, spiral off the Hindu Kush, the Himalayas, the Tian Shan. And so High Mountain Society is landlocked, third pole of the world in terms of the glaciers there outside of the two north and south poles. We're also actually spread out across Afghanistan, Pakistan, China, and Tajikistan. The most populous region is in Tajikistan, and that area is called Badakhshan. And so there's a lot of things I'm going to be throwing around, but the way I like to talk about all of us to include all of our six to eight different language groups, all of us across many countries is Palmyra. We're the people of the Palmyra Mountains. I think that it's one of these things where the further away I get in terms of time and space, I also recognize how exceptional it was to grow up in this situation. So I grew up in Kharag or Korog, which is the capital of Badakhshan, the Pomir part, the mountainous part of Tajikistan. And it's amazing because I grew up speaking Khognune, one of the, the Palmyra languages, and all of my family was around me and my teacher spoke Khoknune and everything around us was the way it had been for such a long time. And I'm sure this might be surprising to many of you who know the geopolitics of the region and the fact that the Russians had been in, in Pamir and Tajikistan and in this in Central Asia for quite a long time. But it's kind of interesting. The the Russian czar took a keen interest to Palmyra people when we beseeched him to report directly to him and not have to go to the Emir of Bukhara. We had a lot of issues in terms of religion and our minority status across language, religion, etc. And so the Russian czar and his people took a keen interest in us, and the Soviets actually kept that going. And so, for example, we had one of the first power plant stations in the world, right? Access to electricity. They were just so keen in documenting our biodiversity, but also our culture, but at the same time, again, giving us access to electricity and and pave roads and all of these things. And I think in other parts of the world, in other parts of the Soviet Union, what this meant was a degradation and annihilation of culture. I think for us, because we are physically so isolated, I mean, there's many parts of Pullman you can't access for like six to nine months out of the year. Mm -hmm. We were able to really keep our language, our religion, our society intact. And it's only as I, again, have been further away from it and not living in that context do I appreciate what that means for your worldview how you think about time how you think about nature how you think about self versus other and so yeah just to reiterate it was just a really fantastic way to grow up where you're fully immersed in your culture and yet you still have access to the things that the west likes to loud in terms of what it can bring in terms of quote-unquote development and so I'd like to dig in a little bit more to some of the things that you just mentioned and, you know, whether it's by talking of some of your memories about being raised within 
that intact culture with all of those values, or maybe if you talk a little bit more about the difference between that indigenous perspective you were raised within regarding time compared to the Western idea or self and other, which, whichever of those things that you mentioned, uh, if, you, if you'd like, I'd really love to hear some of those perspectives. I think it starts with family. So, for example, I have a mom and a dad, Nan and Tat in our language. But I also called all of my aunts Nan and then whatever their first name was, right? Mm-hmm. My grandmother was also Nan. <laughs> my great-grandmother was also Nan. And so I think that automatically shows the kinship that's inherent to how we see ourselves. It's not that I'm an individual and then there's my parents and then there's extensions. It's that we are all part of one community. And as we talk to each other outside of immediate relations that we know we have, everyone is yachan virot, which is sister and brother. Another thing is our houses are actually open spaces. I would claim the open space concept before it became popular. <laughs> and in that, we have different places where elders sit, different places where mothers sit. And we actually live intergenerationally, right? The house is built for that. And it's, it's, it's really just a beautiful concept where you're never meant to be away from your family. You are always embedded and imbued and raised communally in that space. I would say another cool thing about the house is that it's built entirely around nature. So we have this cutout in the roof and there are four different cutouts that are staggered up into the final piece of it. We call it the roots. And those four cutouts represent the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air. We have five pillars in the house and they represent different deities within nature. And even how we measure time is in relationship to body and in relationship to changing seasons. So we can't think about nature without thinking about the human. And we can't think about self without thinking about family, which is not only like extended blood, but also the natural elements. And so I think that these foundational concepts must seem really foreign to anyone who really grew up in the Western sense, or those of us who now live in the West, where that seems really outlandish. It seems like something from a book or a movie, but it was just such a beautiful way to grow up and to have that foundation. That sounds magnificent. And from that context, which in a lot of ways to me sounds almost utopic, but it's such a beautiful, perfect way to live. But then you and your family had to flee due to a civil war. How did some of those things that you just talked about, the values that, that came from living that way, help you and your family during that extremely trying time? Yeah, this story is so funny because I think it shows where values sit. So my mom applied for the green card lottery, which was in its first year. It had been brought forward by George H.W. Bush. Its first year was enacted under President Clinton. And she filled it out as she was like, there's no way. There's no way we're going to get this. This is a lottery. And then two, there's no way we're going to leave. Even though we were in active civil war, we were behind battle lines the Palmetto people who were in other parts of the newly formed Tajikistan from the Tajik SSR under the Soviet Union had all fled also to Palmetto, right? So it was kind of like we had all, even our families who lived in different parts of the country or the Soviet Union had all come back home. And this idea that you would leave, um, not just for like four years for school or not just for like three years for a job or a placement, but that you would leave permanently 
was a really foreign concept for us. And I remember really keenly the night before we left, so many people came by and just sat with us. And this idea that you sit together and you have tea and you offer your energy and you offer your prayers. And and honestly, sometimes it was in silence. I, I really remember this. It felt so somber, but it also felt like people were there. People were there to hold the energy, give us energy, take away the worries and the anxiety and the next morning when we got on the flight, I think everyone felt that there was a part, you know, a part of this larger body of Pomade that was gone, right? We were leaving and it meant that a part of Pomade was leaving with us because we're all part of it. But you also are entering into danger, right? We were crossing battle lines at that point into Dushanbe, the now capital of the Tajik government. And then from there, we had to continue on into Moscow And it's just so interesting because along the way, it felt like that energy was holding us. But also when we got to Moscow, there were pulmonary people there to receive us, right? When we landed finally after several months, right, in in Washington, D.C., again, a pulmonary family was what greeted us. And the pulmonary family in D.C. was extended family. And the pulmonary family in Moscow was extended family. And I think it's that sense of community beyond space that we've been able to build as more people have left, right? Whether they've been forced because of financial situations or now they've been forced because of issues of violence. It's beautiful to see that our community, once leaving Pomade, can still hold all of these ideas of taking care of each other, reciprocity. And and it's really beautiful. That is profound. I mean, especially sitting together just to share energy and that is is a way of taking those values with you along with the others that you talked about. And because of that experience, as well as the values that you mentioned, you've become an international conflict expert. And you're even on the advisory board of your alma mater, George Mason University's Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution, which is particularly poignant right now, given the Carters are in the process of walking on. And I was wondering if you would, what you just shared about what it was like for you and your family to to leave and, and get through such a, a dangerous, challenging time. Now, here we are in the everything crisis, the poly crisis, whether we talk about economics or climate or depending on where you live over where warfare, um, all of this happening at once. And what you just described, how you and your family went through that feels like extremely prescient for all of us to really listen to deeply as to how we move through these times, which are only going to continue to intensify on all fronts. I think that's very fair to say. And if you would, shifting gears from talking about it in a personal way, some of those lessons applied for all of us, indigenous and non-indigenous alike, what would you, how would you speak to that? I would say what I can offer is a couple of conflict resolution theories that I think help to frame or reframe how we look at what's happening around us. I think the first one I would offer is a concept called transformational conflict. And this is nested in the idea that for many cultures, they're conflict averse, right? Conflict is a bad thing. It's a negative. But my favorite definition of conflict is a perceived divergence of interest. And it's not that you actually have varied interests that are on competition against each other. It's that you have the perception that you do. You have a perception that you're at odds. And I think this is powerful because what it does is it reframes conflict 
into a neutral thing, into almost an inevitable thing that is part of life. You're going to bump up against other people and through miscommunication, you're going to assume you want different things. So in framing it that way, conflict is therefore not negative, is therefore not shameful, is therefore not something you're supposed to be avoiding or hiding. And the idea of transformational conflict is that through conflict, through discussing, through disagreeing, through finding a new way forward, we can actually end up in a better place, whether it's interpersonal through two people, whether it's organizational, or even at the nation state rebel group level, is we can actually end up in a better place because we've addressed, processed, and found ways forward in conflict. I want to offer that because I think it's an important reframing to a lot of what we're seeing in the world. The other concept I would offer is a hurting stalemate. This is something in negotiations or mediation that people talk about a lot. It's the idea that things have to be so bad for all of the parties involved that they're forced to come to the table. They're forced to want something different. They're forced to want to talk this out as opposed to continuing it the way it is. And I offer this because I do think a lot of the conversations, whether it's around climate or a lot of the wars that are happening in the world or a lot of the injustices that are happening in the world are really negative. And that's fair because these are negative things. These are horrific, violent things that are being enacted upon peoples and communities and individuals. But the upside is 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, a hundred years ago, we as a maybe a global community would brush things aside and be like, it's not that bad, right? And something worse would happen and would say, it's not that bad. So maybe in a way from a conflict resolution lens, it is good that we've gone to this place where everyone is feeling hurt. Everyone is feeling like we can't continue because it sounds like, you know, humans are complicated in this way. It sounds like that's what it takes for us to move to a place of transformation and saying, okay, we can't operate like this. How do we get to a better place? And so I would offer those two things just to reframe that it's not just a downward spiral. It's not all negativity, right? There is a lot of positive that can come out of just addressing the fact that nobody feels good about where we are. I love that because the next natural step is what do we need to learn from this? What has to change? What cannot and should not continue? And negative in the sense that there are going to be a whole lot of endings happening, but of course, endings bring new beginnings automatically. Everything you just talked about really dovetails into another point that I'd like to ask you to, to speak to, which it's directly linked to something that your elders had taught you of there not being room for despair, but also not having false hope. And to this, you said in the past, quote, it's about how much are we going to be part of the healing and caring for the world versus being antagonistic towards it, end quote. How are we then going to become part of that healing and caring for the world? Yeah, I think this is where I pull on what I grew up with. Like I said, when we think about people, we don't think about an individual. We think about the extended family and community. And when we think about the extended family and community, we think about the world around us and the nature. And for us, I think as many other communities who are close to nature are, we are a deeply seasonal people. There is a time for summer. There is a time for planting in the spring. There's also a time for winter. And it is just as important as the other seasons. So I would offer two examples. One is more on the spiritual side. Is when someone dies, we have very set rituals for how long the family stays. 
again, this is an example where the outside community comes and sits with you and through music, through telling stories, through just sitting in silence again, sometimes they're able to sit with you and hold energy. There's also a 40 days afterwards where they come and you go through this process and another process. And so there's a very set way and time and place for you to mourn, for you to cry. But past a certain place, the elders are very clear that if you mourn that person and that soul any longer, they're not able to pass Hmm. because they're worried about you, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really important is past a certain point of grief, you're then actually enacting harm on the systems around you and maybe even self. I think this plays out in a lot of ways to me and how we think about the world. So in Pomera culture, the vernal equinox is the most important celebration for us, right? We call it Nauru's New Day, and it's usually on March 21st. And so for us, we have 40 days leading up to it called Chilla, Chil, 40 days, is really, really important because these 40 days leading up to the vernal equinox are the darkest, they're the hardest, they're when people have run out of patience, when people have run out of food, when there's very little sunlight. And so one of the things I love is to measure the chilla, the 40 days leading to the vernal equinox, we measure roughly when the sun will hit a different body part. So for example, the first day you're leading into the 40, it's the toenail. And then it goes up to the top of the foot and then the ankle and then the shin and then the calf. And finally, when the sun hits the hairline, it's the day before Nauru's and the sun is finally back in the air. But each of these body parts are actually associated with the different part of the preparation for spring planting and getting the animals ready for pasture. And so, again, I offer this as an example to say there's a time for grief, but there's also a productivity in that grief, right? So in the darkness, in not having enough food, in being really cold, there is work for us to do so that when the spring comes, we're ready. We're ready in our body. We're ready in our spirit. We're ready physically for whatever that has. And I think that to me is what I offer the world is Again, yes, grief, that's so healthy, but there are processes for that and there is productive grief that can lead to preparing us for when this transformation is ready for us because there's work in that too. Really just amazing to hear all of that and super helpful. Another point that I'd like to ask you to speak to is being an indigenous woman and living very much on the front edge of modernity and bringing all of these learned values that you've just spoken to some of them into this way of living. You know, you hear some folks talking about going back to the old ways, which I think in one sense implies abandoning technology and everything that goes with it. But for most of us, that's just not even going to be an option anyway. Can you unpack that a little bit about just what it's like for you, I suppose, living in the modern world and, you know, all of us tied to, computers, phones, and and all of this to do our work and everything that goes with that while adhering to the values and the ways of seeing, feeling, and being that you were just speaking to. Can you share a little bit about how you navigate that, perhaps? I think being born in Kharag and being allowed to be fully Palmeira was a really wonderful way to grow up. And then I went to school and my first through third grade teachers, which are so critical in, in our kind of system and in the Soviet system as well, just having her teach us in Russian and teach us Tajik, but her being Pomeda also really set the stage 
I think one of the things that I struggle with is indigeneity is a term that was invented globally and by a very Western lens. And so while Palmetto people are indigenous by definition, we are very new to the concept of indigeneity. Like I know I'm Palmetto, but I'm just coming in the last little while as many Palmetto people are to what it means to be indigenous in this world. And I think that's interesting because they're estimated about 80% of all indigenous people are from Asia. And yet I think a lot of the narrative we hear about indigeneity tends to be focused on the Americas. And I think that that is perfectly valid. I think that's really important. And because there's so much for all of us to learn from the Americas perspective, right? I think likewise, Australia, New Zealand, there's so much for us to learn from these perspectives. I think one of the things that I noticed though is there's this focus on contact, pre-contact, post-contact. And I think one, it's a false dichotomy, right? We know a lot about the voyaging nations, right, in the, in the Pacific. We know a lot about the cross-cultural exchanges that were happening all up and down from Alaska all the way down to the tip of South America, out into the islands. Pre and post-contact is a false dichotomy. It was mostly just about when did, like, Vespucci land, right, in the Americas. So one, I want to offer that. But two, I also want to offer the idea that technology is something that is Western-given, And that is something that exists in the English language or in scientific peer-reviewed journals. And this is something we face a lot is when we offer something that has worked for tens of thousands of years, many people ask, okay, but that's not science. And I would argue that maybe it's gone through the most rigorous process possible, which is it's kept soils healthy. It's kept forests and rivers alive and thriving. It has kept people alive and thriving. And it has made sure that We've sat in balance for, again, tens of thousands of years. And so I offer that English is not the only best option. Peer-reviewed journals are not the beginning and the end of science. We just have to rethink how we think about science, how we think about authenticity, and how we allow Indigenous people to show up. I may not have my paycheck and my braids in. I may not be wearing my toque and my traditional hat. I may be speaking English in a way that you don't believe is accented. But that doesn't mean I'm any less Pomeda, and it doesn't mean I have any more validity in a Western world. Amazing points. And now you're, as we mentioned before, you're the inaugural executive director of the Home Planet Fund, which is the latest tool in the Patagonia philanthropic ecosystem, uh, Home Planet Fund HPF. So the core part of HPF's work is funding communities, particularly indigenous and tribal directly. Can you talk about how this fund and this kind of work is going to enable communities to take care of their own and how having structures of care and governments are important amidst imposed systems? Absolutely. So Patagonia is just this amazing business that Yvonne Chouinard started over 50 years ago. And his perspective has always been business unusual. And it's not just a tagline. It really is. I can see it, frankly, playing out at all times. It is something that's top of mind. And one of the things he started thinking about, or at least voicing two decades ago, was how do we enact more change? How do we bring people along? And so what he really was asking was, what is philanthropy unusual, right? Especially because philanthropy has been this burgeoning sector at this point over the last two decades, but especially in the last 10 to 15 years. And so Home Planet Fund is the answer to what is philanthropy unusual. One, 
it really is about underfunded people, underfunded places, underfunded interventions. And two, it's about bringing people along. So one, on the underfunded people, places, interventions, it's what you're saying, is we know a lot of the stats show that local communities, tribal communities, indigenous peoples all over the world, when they have access to funding, they spend it more cautiously, they are more accountable to each other, and the initial funding just goes much further and they're more likely to just keep that work going because they're investing in selves, they're investing in their children, they're investing in the future and the past. So one, how do we invest directly into people so that there's not a nonprofit that gets a 10% cut in DC and then another one that gets a 10% cut elsewhere. And by the time it gets to a village, it's 50%, right? It's 50 cents on the dollar. Two, there are lots of interventions that people are trying to do. But for us, we like to take a nature-based solutions approach. And what this means is there are already things that people have been doing again for thousands of years that work, that keep rivers healthy, that keep forests continuing, right? But that also meet economic needs of people, social needs of people, health in the fullest sense, natural health, human health, biodiversity, all of that. And so we know communities have been doing this for a really long time. How do we just support these solutions that we feel aren't trying to address a part of a person or a part of a problem, but are this holistic approach? And then three, how do we work in places others can't or won't? Because it's rural, because it's fragile, maybe because it's in conflict, maybe because there's issues of access with language or how these communities have not had access to Western systems. So for us, for example, we're not afraid of going into places that others might deem too fragile, too difficult. This is partially because these communities are doing the work anyway. So if we're able to support them, our ability to have a massive impact on them, but also have a massive impact on the larger multi-crises that we're all facing is outsized. So that's the underfunded people, places, interventions. The second portion of this is how do we bring people along? I think for many of us, all of these crises feel overwhelming. And if you just look at climate or biodiversity, it feels overwhelming. Where do you put your money what is the most like bang for the buck, as people like to say, right? And so for us, we're doing the work anyway. We're going to spend this money anyway. But how do we provide easy ways for people to say 100% of every cent you donate to us is directly going to go to these communities? We're going to make sure that we're able to support them from a holistic perspective as they're doing these nature-based solutions. And we sit in trust with them. We understand things are changing quickly, not only because of geopolitical issues, but again, because of the climate crisis. Most communities are one landslide, one drought, one bad harvest away from food insecurity, from having to leave their home. So we just want to make it easier for people to come along with us, whether that's individuals, whether that's companies that mean well, whether that's high net worth people who don't know where to put their money. We want to help make it easier for them. And I can't tell you how truly honored I am to get to be a part of helping support those things, particularly given, as we've mentioned several times on this podcast, that, I mean, you see the estimate vary, but conservatively 80% of all remaining biodiversity on the planet is on land that is indigenous land. And we're talking about maybe that's 11% of the land on the planet. And so this work to help support those people is of critical, critical importance for all of us. That said, one of the things I, I like to ask all of the guests is, and you've already touched on this in several different ways, but the specific question of 
given all of the crises that are currently besetting the planet, how do we best comport ourselves living into this uncertain future? Well, going back to what you just said, I love that stat. And I also want to emphasize that while it's statistics like that that bring Indigenous people and local communities to the forefront and to the table, they are not a means to an end. They are part of that end, right? And so I think that's part of why your questions around what does holistic structures of care, holistic structures of governance look like, why we're not just trying to mitigate, right, but why we're actually just trying to think about alternate pluralistic societies where we don't have to live in one monoculture, one globalized culture, but we understand the beauty of plurality, the beauty of many different ways of living, many different ways of engaging with the earth that helps it heal, that helps us come to a better place as individual peoples, but also as one one globe, not just humans, not just animals, but plants and rivers and mountains and all of that. And that's what I would like to offer is that we are not in this alone. I think this can feel so overwhelming at the individual level, at the nation's level, at the community level, at the family level, but we're not in this alone. It is not people versus planet, right? The planet is a part of us. We are a part of nature. So the pain that we're feeling is part of the larger pain that's going on in the world. I think it's healthy, but again, we can't live in grief forever. Even grief has actions in it that lead us to a place of hope, a place of transformation. And so that's what I would offer. Instead of feeling bogged down in these big things, and I mean, we're recording this as COP is about to start, as opposed to just feeling like that's the place where decisions get made, and if things don't work there, nothing will work. There's something we can do individually. There's something we can do in community. But it's not to the detriment of our own health and our own ability to ebb and flow with time and to take moments where we rest, where we grieve, where we find joy. And so that's what I can offer is to push against this really, really hard narrative that we don't have time and we have to find technocratic quick fixes so that we can continue to live in ways that I would argue have not been good for us as our mental health, have not been good for the way we have become disconnected with nature and disconnected from self and disconnected from other. So there's a lot for us to learn, but we have to be able to go through the transformation. Like you said, there are a lot of doors closing. There are a lot of endings that have to happen before we enter into a new place of hope and of of balance. Well, Delafruz, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I absolutely trust that what you shared is going to be so helpful to people that, that hear this as everything just keeps ramping up by the day. And just to remember these essential points and truths and experiences that you've spoken to. And thank you for taking some time out of your very, very busy schedule and sharing that medicine with us, which is how I see it and how I feel it. Thank you for for that. And thank you for the current work that you're doing, as well as all the work you've done leading up to this. And so just again, thank you so much, Dilla Fries. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be part of the show. And I'm sure people will be very excited to hear the messaging that you put out from Home Planet Funds. So stay tuned, everybody. (laughs) Dar's coming. (laughs) Thank you, Dilla Fries. Have you ever felt alone? 
This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Dar Jamail, Melody Travers Allison, Asher Miller, and Rob Dietz. Theme music is Hold That Spirit by Ray Zaragoza. This is a program of the Post Carbon Institute, and you can learn more about this podcast, along with other information on the great unraveling at resilience.org. The bird song you are hearing is the large-billed reed warbler, which is indigenous to the Pamir Mountains in Tajikistan.